Good morning. This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah 53, 1-7. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Thank you, Jennifer. Hi, church. My name is Jason. If I haven't met you yet, I look forward to doing that. I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City Bible Church, and I get the joy of exploring with you Isaiah 53 today. And I say joy because it is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, right? If we only had one bit of the Bible for the rest of your life, this will be it for me. And the reason it's one of my favorite is because it is the gospel, not only in a nutshell, but it is deep, it's beautiful, and it's powerful. We read this passage. I know we only read one through seven, but I'm going to encourage you, uh, if you've got your Bible with you, if you've got your Bible app, have that open because we're going to look at all 12 verses and we're going to explore the power of Isaiah 53 together. When I think about Isaiah 53, um, this week I was reminded of this thing we used to say when we were kids. Now, for me, that was a long time ago. For some of you, it was even longer ago. But this is the way it, the way it was someone, uh, if you were blaming someone or you were uh, trying to out someone or point fingers at them and you were pointing at them, which is very rude, so forgive me, pointing at them, then someone would say, yeah, but there's three fingers pointing back at you. You ever heard that? Yeah? All right, I'm not just crazy, right? Three fingers pointing back at you. And that's what I think about when I think about this passage, because we've been talking about In Isaiah, the judgment against all these nations, against uh, Judah and Israel and Syria and Assyria and other surrounding nations, all of this judgment from God against their idolatry, their rejection of God, their uh, self-indulgence, their oppression of other people, and how God was going to bring his swift, righteous, and powerful judgment against them. But this passage is the part of it where it gets personal, where it's about you and me. And so there are three fingers pointing back at us. 
So I want us to pray about that and get ready to explore this power. God, thank you for Isaiah 53. Thank you for the depth and the beauty and the power it contains as it reveals your truth about Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. So would you open our hearts to receive your truth, open our minds to understand the depth of this truth of Jesus, and by your spirit, would you guide us into all knowledge? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I've already said is that judgment is not only for the nations, but for individuals. Judgment is not only for the nations, but for individuals. And you might be saying, wait, that's not fair. I'm not setting up some idol in my house. I'm not bowing down to false gods. I'm not sacrificing my children to Molech. I'm not oppressing others. Uh, I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. How can God's judgment stand against me? So it's not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. Or at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? Well, all right, you want to hear something really country? Besides, besides my accent that sneaks out every now and then. Um, back in the hills and hollers of Tennessee, where I grew up, we did a lot of hunting. And some of the hunting we did with hound dogs. All right? And so you would pull up into the fields on the edge of the forest, and you would open the tailgate, and the dogs would charge out of the, the dog box. That's what we called it. It was a kennel in the back of the truck. It was the dog box. You opened it, the dogs would charge out, and they had an alpha. And the, the alpha dog was usually the smartest, the fastest, the most experienced. And it would lead this pack of dogs on the scent of the, of the game, follow the trail, and every, all the other dogs were behind it. And before long, when that lead dog got scent of the game, it would let out a, a bay, a yell. And you would know, all right, they're on the trail. And you would start following them. And then all the other dogs, as they came on the scent and started uh, smelling it, they would also bark behind it. But you always knew when the lead dog caught the scent because it was the first to bark. And so that whole story is to lead up to this. At some point, I've heard this phrase as I was growing, growing up about a guilty party. So if you're in a group and someone is trying to accuse the group of something they've done wrong or, or call, wanting someone to fess up, you ever heard that? Another Southern thing. Uh, fess up. They, you're trying to get you to do, uh, to, to admit what you've done, to come clean. And someone would say, I didn't do it. Well, here's the phrase. The lead dog always hollers first. You ever heard that? That was the phrase. And it always back to that hunting uh, analogy. So if you've got this pack of people and someone speaks up first and says, I didn't do it. Usually, they're the ones that did it because they are feeling that they have to defend themselves. They're feeling defensive. Well, when we look at this idea that judgment is not only for the nations, but for the individuals, and we want to say, that's not fair. I'm not as bad as that guy. 
Well, we're hollering first. We're saying, I need to defend myself because I know that I need judgment. I know that I am under the wrath of God. And that's what Isaiah 53 deals with. It deals with the fact that each of us deserve the judgment of God. I want us to look specifically at Isaiah 53, 6. And it says this. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. We all went astray like sheep. Now that sounds pretty innocent. We're just sheep out there in the pasture, feeding along, and we just kind of wandered off. It wasn't our fault. It was just maybe our stubbornness, or it's in our nature. We know that from the scriptures. We can't help sin. So it's really not our fault. We just wandered away. But it goes further. It doesn't let us get away with that. It says, we have all turned to our own way. This, this reveals a little more, that we... Our sin is intentional. It is choosing to rebel against God. Yes, it's in our nature. Yes, we can't help it. But yes, we also choose it. We make ourselves our own God. In other words, we choose to go our own way. And then it says something about the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. So in this passage in other parts of the Bible, we see the word sin, we see the word iniquity, and we see the word transgressions. And you can put all those together, and they're roughly the same thing. They all bring us to the same point, that we're sinners before God, deserving of judgment. But I wanted to see if there was really any difference between each of those words. And so I found a few different sources that kind of explained the little nuances. Again, they all mean the same thing, but they have little nuances. And here's one that you might like. Uh, It's from the Gospel Project. And it said, sin is missing the goal. If God has given us a goal of glorifying him, we've missed it by our sin. We are sinful. We sin. But then iniquity is when we distort what is good. We take God's goodness, his gifts, his blessings, and we turn them to bad or to evil. We've distorted what is good. And then transgression has more to do with fracturing relationships. Our relationship with God, we've fractured it. We've destroyed it. The relationship you wanted us to have with other people, we have destroyed those things. So our sin, iniquity, and transgression. And it says in verse 6, we all have iniquity. I want to, uh, now and a little bit later in the message, I want to use some phrases from uh, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor uh, even before the nation was formed in the colonies in the 1730s. He was a pastor and he preached this sermon one time. You might have heard about it called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so I want to use some phrases from that um, when we're thinking about the depth of our sin as exposed here in Isaiah 53. And Jonathan Edwards starts with this idea. You have offended God infinitely more than you can imagine. 
You are 10,000 times more abominable in God's eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. I was thinking about that. I was thinking, there aren't really venomous, hateful serpents on this side of the mountains, Washington. So I was like, what would it be? I thought about spiders, but, but then I thought, rats. <laughs> I don't think there's any one of us in the room that would not find a sewer rat detestable. So think about that. You are 10,000 times more detestable in God's eyes than the most disgusting sewer rat. That's, that's pretty serious. In fact, there is no reason that you should not this very minute drop down into the flames of hell. Now, maybe we're uncomfortable talking about the flames of hell, especially when I was just telling a story about hunting with coon dogs. But talking about the flames of God's judgment, those are God's words, not my words. In fact, God's words from the very book of the Bible we're studying, Isaiah 66. Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 15 through 16. It says um, that God will show his wrath against his enemies. Look, the Lord will come with fire. His chariots are like the whirlwind. To execute his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment on all humanity with his fiery sword and many will be slain by the Lord. So Isaiah 53 is driving this point home. We are sinners. God's, God judges sin, and God's judgment is just, yet it is horrible. And this is why Isaiah 53 is so powerful. Because in light of all of our guilt... Jesus, the Messiah, suffered to save God's people from their sins. And that's the message of Isaiah 53. But maybe you're thinking, is Isaiah 53 really about Jesus? Is this chapter of the Bible really about Jesus? Well, the New Testament writers really thought so. I want to point out uh, three passages of the New Testament that directly link Isaiah 53 to Jesus. Matthew 18, uh, excuse me, Matthew 8, 17. Jesus was healing people. And Matthew is recording that, uh, that, that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and it's quoting he himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. First Peter chapter 2 is speaking to people that are suffering injustices, tragic injustices. And get, Peter's giving them encouragement. And he says, 
Uh, You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He starts to quote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now turned, returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter is saying, Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. And there's no better passage that specifically says Isaiah 53 is about Jesus, except for in Acts. Acts chapter 8. You, Acts is, the early parts of Acts especially, but all of Acts is full of the power of God on display through the apostles to point to the truth of Jesus. And so there was one apostle named Philip, and he had just been doing work. And God said, all right, now it's time to go to another place. I have a job for you to do. And so he says, get up and go on this road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's very uh, apropos for our uh, setting in this world today. But this is the area where God was at work. And as as Philip was going, uh, there was a chariot. And in that chariot was a servant of uh, Queen of the Ethiopians, Candace, and he, and he was her servant, and in some ways maybe an emissary. He had been to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, probably on her behalf. Now he was headed back home to Ethiopia, and God says to Philip, go up to that chariot. And so he, he runs up to the chariot, and as he's walking beside the chariot, he hears this uh, Ethiopian reading from the Bible. And what book of the Bible was he reading? Isaiah. And what part of Isaiah was he reading? Well, let's find out. Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard him reading uh, from the prophet Isaiah, and he said to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Isaiah 53. Then the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is this prophet saying this about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus, the suffering servant. Here's a quote to wrap it all up from Harold Wilmington. It says, Isaiah probably contains the most important and far-reaching chapter in the entire Old Testament, chapter 53. This amazing chapter alone is quoted from or alluded to some 85 times in the New Testament. Jesus himself said that Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah 53 is about 
Jesus. But what does it say about Jesus? Well, it says that he's the suffering servant. This is what we call this passage about, the suffering servant. But understanding the suffering servant, it brings up this idea that not only is he the suffering servant, we have to justify it with this. We know Jesus to be the victorious king. And so the victorious king Jesus is a suffering servant. We have to put those two things together as the truth of the scriptures. But this challenges our notions about Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. When we think about the victorious King Jesus, this description challenges our understanding of who Jesus is in these ways. From all appearances, Jesus was a normal guy. Now, from our point in history, looking back, there's no way we would call Jesus a normal guy. But Jesus was a normal guy. In fact, he was from a quiet place. He had a regular childhood and early adulthood. And there's this metaphor here about him growing up uh, as a, uh, a young plant out of dry ground. Instead of the way kings are described as being a towering tree with strength and roots that go deep and branches that cover the earth. No, he's a tiny little shoot growing up out of dry ground. He is no, he is no one to, take, uh, any, uh, to give any attention to, but it goes further. He's not handsome. He's not majestic. We think of Jesus, and we have... Uh, by our own invention and by the art we've experienced uh, from Western art. We've, we have this picture of Jesus. He's beautiful. He's strong. He's the kind of king that we would want. That's not true. He was not beautiful, not majestic. He had no appearance uh, that would make him desirable to us. Now compare him to some other kings. And other leaders. Think about King Saul. When the people were first looking, the people of Israel were first looking for a king. It was against God's will, but they were demanding a king, and they were they were searching for a king. And God had led them to this one family. And when they saw Saul, they said, "He's our king." Just by his physical appearance. He was tall. He was strong. He was handsome. He was the kind of uh, person that people wanted to follow just by his appearance. Now think about King David. Now he was uh, the youngest of his brothers. He was in fact out tending sheep when they came looking for him to be king. And yet when they saw him, this is what they said. He was ruddy and handsome in appearance. And he was a handsome man as he grew up to be king. Think about modern leaders. Uh, in fact, um, there was a moment. What are you guys laughing at? You laughing at me? Modern leaders. No, but think about this. 
There was a time when, believe it or not, when presidential candidates did not appear on TV. There was a, t- there was a first presidential election where those candidates appeared on TV, and it lost someone the election because of how he looked. Leaders, we want them to look good. We, we think, in our just natural thinking, good-looking, strong-looking people are good leaders. Think about the, the uh, most famous Christian leaders in uh, popular Christian circles. These people that dress in nice clothes. If you're a young, hip pastor, you've got the, all the, the large collection of, of sneakers. You've got uh, your distressed jeans that cost thousands of dollars to look like they just came out of the dumpster. You've got this, you've got this sculpted hairdo, just right, shining bright teeth, and the personality to go with it. That's what we think of when we think of a leader. That's not who Jesus was. No appearance that we would desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected. He was the kind of person that people turned away from. The ESV says they turned their faces away from him. They didn't even want to look at him. If he entered the room, people started to leave the room. That's Jesus. It is hard to reconcile that with our understanding of who Jesus is. He was despised and rejected. Now, maybe you kind of have experienced that. I know some of us have. We've experienced rejection in this life. Abandonment, rejection, Maybe we felt left out or maybe we felt singled out. Jesus knows what that's like and so much more, infinitely more. Think about this from John chapter 1. It says that Jesus was in the world. He came to the world and the world was created through him. The very God who made the world, he came into the world and yet... The world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It wasn't just, oh, we didn't see you there. It was, we reject you. We despise you. That is the suffering servant. But this juxtaposition between a victorious king and suffering servant also challenges our notions about power and victory. How can a king be victorious by suffering and dying? How can one have all power over all things yet appear powerless to stand against one's oppressors and one's assassins? Powerless yet has all power. There was a, a depiction in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Maybe you read the book, or maybe you saw the movie, uh, and it's this, this really uh, excellent depiction of what we're talking about here. So Aslan is the Jesus type. He's the hero. He, is, uh, he represents Christ. He has power. He has omniscience. And he has entered the world to bring justice and salvation and, and uh, to make things right. He's a lion. And he is strong, and he's brave, and he's wise, and he's ferocious. 
And there comes a point in this first book where um, one of the boys has sinned and sinned so much that not only is, is he doomed, but his whole family is doomed and the whole world is doomed. And there is nothing they can do about it. They're trying to fight against the, the evil queen who is enacting this doom, and they cannot succeed. There's nothing they can do. And Aslan comes, and behind everyone's back, he quietly goes to the queen, and he surrenders himself. And the girls, two of the girls that love Aslan, they, uh, they, they uh, see him as the savior, the, the powerful, victorious king, and they start following secretly. And the evil queen and her minions drag Aslan up to this stone table that represents all of the evil, all of the idol worship, that represents all the doom, and they drag him up on top of this table, and they brutally kill him, assassinate him. And the girls are standing back in the bushes, hiding and watching it, and they can't believe it. They're thinking, this is the victorious king, the lion, the, the hope that we had. He was going to set everything right, and he had all power, and yet he was powerless. He gave it all up. Now he's dead. Now we are doomed. Now we have no victorious king. And all the evil horde, they go off celebrating. They go off to finish the destruction of the world. And the girls are weeping and crying. And finally, they, in their grief, they just have to walk. And they start walking. And then they hear a noise. And they turn around. And the table's gone, the crushed. And there's no Aslan on it. And there he is, resurrected, more powerful than ever, the risen victorious king. So we think about the victorious King Jesus as a suffering servant. For a moment, he doesn't appear as the victorious king. So it challenges our understanding of, of power and victory. But what is that suffering? What is the suffering that we see here in Isaiah 53? And this, this, this passage really is a Good Friday passage. I think this is a perfect passage to read on Good Friday because it does focus on the suffering of Christ. It says he was struck down. He was crushed severely. He was afflicted. It means he was mocked. He was cursed. He was beaten. There was a crown of thorns put on his head. And he was crushed under the heavy cross as it fell as he was carrying it to his place of execution. Isaiah 53 says that by his wounds we are healed, or other translations, by his stripes we've been healed. That's directly uh, speaking of the lashing that Jesus took, that his back was striped by the lash until his flesh and his blood uh, were hanging off of his back, that, that these wounds poured out the blood of Jesus. And he was pierced. His hands were pierced to nail him to the cross until he suffered and died. And then his side was pierced, proving that he had died. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is the suffering. 
And as appalling and heartbreaking as this is, Isaiah 53 says something else. That this tragic sacrifice of God's holy son was God's plan. It was not accidental. It says the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And that Jesus did not protest the unfairness of his treatment. Because it was God's plan. Acts 3.18 says that. It says that God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. It's God's plan. But why was this God's plan? Why was it his design? Why was it his will? And this is the point of Isaiah 53, the heart of the entire Bible, that Jesus suffered because Jesus worked salvation for God's people. Jesus bore our sins on himself. He became sin for us. A great verse that says this specifically is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. He became our sin, our iniquity, our transgression. He was Counted among the rebels, verse 12. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, verse 9. I want us to, to think for a moment. Jesus became this for us. What are our sins that he became? What is our iniquity? What is our transgression? Yours, mine. I want us, in fact, I want us to take 10 seconds. We're going to pause, we're going to be quiet, we're going to shut our eyes, and I want us to think before God, what sin did Jesus become for us? Jesus bore our sins on himself. But why? Because he took the judgment and the punishment for our rebellion. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He, has taken, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment, verse 8. All that we deserved as consequences of our rebellion against God, he took for us. So he took our sin, but what happened next? Jesus saves us by giving his followers his righteousness in God's sight. The second part of verse uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I said, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, be, he became our sin, 
and he made us his righteousness. It says that all throughout chapter 53, verse 11, in my righteous, uh, my righteous servant will justify many. Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Verse 12, he interceded for the rebels. This salvation is wonderful. And there is no other salvation. But here's the point. All the way back in verse 1 of chapter 53, here's a question. Who has believed? Who has believed what, he heard, what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, it's, it's not enough to hear about this Jesus, this suffering, this salvation. And it's not enough to be thinking about it, to be thinking that it's true, to be thinking that it's meaningful and powerful. Hearing and thinking are not enough. And if you've been in the church for any amount of time, even if you've been in church your entire life, this is a danger. We hear it. We think it's true. And that's all that happens. What is the call to us to believe. Who has believed? Now, we just went through all of this description of Jesus' suffering, and maybe you're new to hearing this, or maybe you're past hearing it, you're tired of hearing it, and you ask, why so much emphasis on the blood of Jesus? Why are we focused on the crucifixion? Let's talk about the happier things, the things where Jesus can make our lives better, give us our best life now. Why talk about suffering and judgment? Because there is no other mediator, intercessor between our sin and the righteous, holy judgment of God. A couple more Phrases from Jonathan Edwards. You may be unconvinced of the truth we've been talking about, but one day, in this life or the next, you will be fully convinced. You have nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, and nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done and nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. God will inflict wrath without any pity. He will have no mercy on those who fall under the judgment of God against their sin. Though they cry with a loud voice, I will not hear, him, hear them, God says in Ezekiel 8. But today is a day of mercy. You can count on no other day, in fact, no other moment as a chance to put your faith in Christ than this moment, because you're not promised another one. You're not promised another day. This is the only day of mercy that is at hand. You may be thinking that you would escape God's judgment, but how many people 
will remember the truth of Jesus' sacrifice as they are in hell. So what must I do? What must I do to receive the salvation of Christ described in Isaiah 53? Well, this is how we're going to end that discussion. It's from Romans 10. Romans 10, 9 through 11 and verse 13, it says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes in his heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth, both to God and to someone before you leave today. And for those of us that are believers, let's not let the power and the depth of Christ becoming our sin and giving us his righteousness, let's not let that power become dull to us or commonplace. Let's pray. God, thank you for these truths, these truths that are so deep and significant and powerful that we can't even begin to understand them. God, as you've laid these out for us in this beautiful and terrifying uh, poetic prophecy here in Isaiah 53, God, our, our limited minds can only begin to see the depth of this and how great the Father's love. God, that you would put our sin on your Son, that through his suffering, you would bring us to be your sons and daughters. God, if there is any among us today who's yet to believe in Christ, would you impress upon them that this is the moment of their salvation, that they would believe and confess? And God, would you move on all of our hearts, that we would never let the depth of Christ's sacrifice become commonplace. And we pray in his name.